I'm sure you've noticed that there seems to be a growing impulse among people today to discover their ancestral roots. I mean, there are TV shows dedicated to the topic. There are websites like Ancestry.ca that, that help you and assist you in finding your ancestral heritage. And, and really, this makes sense in, in many ways. I mean, one of the reasons in this pursuit is that by better understanding our heritage, our roots, we can more clearly understand both who we are and even why we do some of the odd things we do. And that's really partly why we are walking through this current teaching series, which really is a bit atypical for us. Our current teaching series, if you remember, is, is called, What Do We All Believe in Christianity? And we've been doing a quick overview, at, at least it's quick in my mind, uh, of the history and development of the church, the body, the family of Christ, and its varied traditions and denominations. And to this point in the series, we've really been largely looking and, and seeking to learn from other Christian traditions, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Anglicanism, and even some other strains within Protestantism. But this week, though, and, and in two weeks in particular, we're going to turn our focus to our own tradition, our own ecclesiastical nuclear family of Protestant evangelicalism. Now, next week, we're going to be looking at Pentecostalism together, and then in two weeks, we're going to focus in especially on the Christian Missionary Alliance and, and us here at Southview. But really, part of what I'm hoping we recognize this series is, is that we can fall into the same tendency as a denominational family into which nuclear families can fall, where, where we start thinking that the way our family does it is the only right way to do it. For example, came across this cartoon. I don't know if you've seen this before. It's of a church membership class. Teacher says, so this is where our movement came along and finally got it all right in all the spread of the ancestry of the body of Christ. Now, we can tend to have that attitude as well. So, so today we're going to look at our own tradition, some of its strengths, some of its weaknesses. We're going to look at evangelicalism, and we're going to ask three questions about that very broad movement. One is, where did evangelicalism come from? And then secondly, what are evangelicalism's distinctives? What kind of sets it apart as a movement? And then thirdly, a bit different question is, what can we then at, at Southview take from all this? And to this point, I want to focus on one matter particularly that I think can be a blind spot for us uh, in the body of Christ, all right? So let's dive into this, and we're going to be covering a lot of material as, as we have been, but hopefully it'll be beneficial. And in that first question, where did evangelicalism come from? All right, maybe before we do that, let's do a quick overview, in case you haven't been here, of church history in about uh, 90 seconds. Now, if you remember, the, as we spoke of, the church apostolic, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, first thousand years, there was essentially one holy Catholic church. One kind of universal church. There were branches off it, but largely one church. In 1054, though, there was a great schism between the Western and Eastern churches, between Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. 
And, and that remained until about the 1500s when the Reformation came. And out of the Reformation, as Kelly led us in looking at it last weekend, there was a branching off of Protestantism. Now, again, that simplifies this picture. That's a bit more accurate, even as Kelly touched on last week, of the multiple branches that began spreading out and, and different denominations. But let's keep it simple again, back to Protestantism. And we looked at a few weeks ago that one of the branches, the via media between Roman Catholicism the middle way between Catholicism and Protestantism was Anglicanism, all right? Quick overview of some of the things we've been covering. Now, now let's move to, to evangelicalism then and say, where does it grow out of that? Now, let's start at this point. That, that term evangelicalism or evangelical, it actually comes from a Greek word, euangelion. Now, now do you want to try saying that with me? Euangelion, it's good for you to know that. It simply means, literally, good news. Now, that's a word from which we get the word evangelist. It speaks of one who spreads the good news in that kind of dimension. So that's the root, the name with which we bear as Protestant evangelicals. Now, one of the challenges of studying evangelicalism, kind of in contrast, unlike Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy or some of these other traditions, is that there's not one simple evangelical denomination or group or organization. I mean, evangelicalism encompasses a wide range of both denominations, of, of scholars, of churches as well. So there are Baptist evangelicals, there are Methodist evangelicals, there are Alliance evangelicals, Pentecostal evangelicals. And, and this is what the Oxford Dictionary says in, in definition. Listen to this. Evangelicalism is a worldwide Protestant movement Maintaining that the essence of the Christian gospel consists in the doctrine of salvation by faith in Christ's atonement. You got that? Let, let me just pause for a second. Is you might want to take notes today. Because we're going to be covering a lot. And these might be good things for you to refer back to. Either on a sermon note sheet or your iPad. Whatever you want to use for that. Now you look at that definition. That's kind of broad, right? And, and actually the reality is, contrary to what the Oxford Dictionary says... There are Anglican, there's Roman Catholic evangelicals. Our current Pope, Pope Francis, is often referred to as an evangelical Catholic. So it's, it's more difficult to define, to identify kind of a, a specific starting point for the evangelical movement. But there are really, as scholars speak of, really three main streams from church history that really flowed into forming evangelicalism. Now, we're going to skip over some of these kind of quickly, and I'll, I'll just tell you, if you want to go deeper in this, if you're one of those kind of love history kind of people like me, uh, Mark Knoll, N-O-L-L, a uh, great scholar to look at on evangelicalism, or John Stackhouse from Regent uh, College out in Vancouver on the Canadian perspective on this. You can look to as well. So but let's look at three streams. What were the three ecclesiastical streams that moved in forming evangelicalism? And again, just I want you to remember this. This is us we're talking about. This formed us. So first, the first stream that really influenced evangelicalism was this. Pietism. Just say that with me, will you? Pietism. I want you to remember them. Now, if you wonder what was pietism about, its name hints at its focus, right? They were about piety, 
not in just a detached, over-spiritual, pious sense, but in a desire to see piety, holiness, begin to flow in their lives. This was in the mid-1600s, particularly in France and Germany. There was this rising desire among some some of the groups within the church to see life change. Piety began to be expressed in their lives. The Moravians were one of these groups that just had an incredible impact based on their few numbers. And many of the pietists believed, they started believing that when a new birth actually happened in a person's life, it was often connected to kind of an agonizing repentance. There was a sense if if you become a new one in Christ, there will be an agonizing repentance. And additionally, there will be a need to set aside worldly amusements. So the pietists were ones who said, we will detach ourselves from things like dancing in in their assessment, the theater of that day, even public games. Those were worldly amusements, so they started detaching themselves. Got that picture? That was kind of unusual in that day. So that's one stream. A second stream, a bit later, is Wesleyanism. Just say it with me. Wesleyanism. Now, it speaks of John and Charles Wesley in particular. Now, if you remember... John and Charles Wesley were Anglican ministers, as their father was. Their whole ministry life, they were in the Anglican church. But they began to have an impulse and really were formed by pietism, molded by its thinking, to say, if we're following Jesus, our lives should start looking different, right? And so Wesley looked at this and had the brilliant idea, not necessarily original, to say to do that, for our lives to be changed, we need to walk in accountability with one another. So Wesley had the idea of forming these class meetings, they were called. In our parlance today, they were small groups. Groups of about a dozen people that would gather together regularly and typically weekly to study God's word and hold one another accountable, encourage one another in being transformed in Christ. This was a transformative idea, truly, and it molded us even to today. Now, again, it wasn't original. Can you think of another individual that gathered a dozen people with him to equip them? Yeah, Jesus would be. So Wesley had this idea, and really, you'd look at us today, and we'd say this. Part of the reason why we give such emphasis to living life on life, and even saying, if you're following Jesus, you need to do it with others, life on life. Part of the reason we say that is because Scripture speaks of it. Secondly, Jesus modeled it. But additionally, historically, part of the reason we have that impulse is because we're influenced by Wesley. He molded us in seeing the need for that. So Wesleyanism was another great influence in evangelicalism. And then a third stream, pietism, Wesleyanism, and then Puritanism. Just say that with me. Puritanism. And I wonder right now, any images come to mind for you? Now, as well, if you want, what were the Puritans about? Similar to pietism, they were about purity, as their name reflects, they were about seeing if we're following Jesus, our lives should look different. We should be growing in holiness. Now, their heritage was intriguing. I'm going to simplify it a bit. Most Puritans came out of the Anglican church. Now, remember the Church of England? The, the battles they had going between Henry VIII, where he removed himself from the Catholic Church. Queen Mary brought him back under the Catholic Church. Elizabeth I brought him and separated him again to the Anglican church. Remember that stuff we covered? Well, the Puritans were ones 
that more, had more Protestant leadings in the Anglican church. And they wanted the Anglican church to detach itself from some of this Catholic influence and then move more towards Reformed Protestant thinking. And so for some of them, they faced such persecution in this that they headed to the New World. They headed to North America where they would have freedom to worship in the manner in which they wanted to worship. Now, those Puritans often have been characterized as kind of wacky extremists. Any images, again, come to mind for you? Salem witch trials, anybody? That kind of picture. Though there were some extreme Puritans, but largely, understand this, the Puritans largely were devoted men and women who believed that if I'm following Jesus, my life should start looking different. I should be molded by him. And so they had this impulse. And that's a third mainstream. Pietism, Wesleyanism, Puritanism, all poured into evangelicalism, into which we are still influenced today. All right? Now let me just make a note here, note here about our heritage. There are some distinct differences between Canadian evangelicalism and American evangelicalism. You ever notice that? Can I just touch on three so we're aware of this? What is the difference between, generally, Canadian and U.S. evangelicalism? For one, we'd say this. Canadian evangelicalism is far less interwoven with the national narrative. I mean, part is, you grow up in school in the States, the stories you are told of of Puritans at Plymouth Rock celebrating the first Thanksgiving. And, and so Thanksgiving has a religious deeply religious sense, connected with the national narrative. The Puritans came believing there was a manifest destiny for America. And they pointed to America as going to be a nation that was going to be a city on the hill. So the nation is viewed as a city on the hill, not the body of Christ, kind of oddly. Now that's far less so in Canada. A second distinction in Canada is this. In Canada, we are far less associated with one political party. I know if I asked you, what are most evangelicals in America, political-wise? What party? Republican. No question. You think of the term moral majority of Jerry Falwell, uh, that term which has the not-so-subtle implication that everyone else is the immoral minority. The moral majority, there was such a political weight of evangelicalism in the States, far less so, and I think far positively so, in Canada. And then a third distinctive for us here in Canada, in evangelicalism. Generally, there's a less confrontational approach in Canada towards societal issues. Now, now think of in the States, individuals again like Jerry Falwell, James Dobson, how they, how they address societal and moral issues. There's a far less confrontational approach that's taken here in Canada. To the point where, think of this, not many people know, some do, not all, that we currently have an evangelical prime minister, Stephen Harper. He's actually part of the Christian Missionary Alliance. In the States, that would be broadcast, broadcast hugely. In Canada, it's just not as big an issue. So those are some of the distinctions. Got those distinctions? And all that art history. You got that? Drink it. Just drink it in for a second. And that leads to the question, if that's our heritage then, how has that formed us in our distinctives in evangelicalism? What are the markers that really set us apart? Now, 
It'd be hard to distill them down. David Bebbington is a British historian. He points to four, I'm going to add a fifth that others like George Marsden add, that, that give us a picture. These are the distinctives of evangelicalism. Now, as we go through these distinctives, you're going to think, every other church has those to some degree, right? And, and they do. It's just the degree to which they are a focus in the evangelical tradition. All right, so five distinctions. Let's walk through these, all right? The first distinctive evangelicalism, it's biblicism. Do you say it with me? Biblicism. What is biblicism? Well, biblicism, we could simply summarize it this way. Biblicism is a particularly high regard for the authority of Scripture, the authority of the Bible. I mean, that, the belief that all essential spiritual truths are found in its pages I mean, evangelicals believe that they not only maintain kind of classic Christian beliefs about Scripture, but their piety, their faith in life is formed around this book, whether it be in family times, in small groups, in individual congregation study of the Word of God, in, in the centrality of preaching in public worship, in the Bible's supremacy really in every dimension of life. And again, you'd say, well, don't all Christian churches focus on Scripture? They do, but in evangelicalism particularly, it gets great emphasis. All right, that's one. Secondly, crucicentrism. Try saying it. Crucicentrism. Now, crucicentrism, it's different from Christocentrism. Christocentrism means there's a focus on Jesus, on Christ. Now, our symbol tells us, as we look at our symbol as a church, we are focused on Christ, the triune God, but we are followers of Jesus. Crucicentrism means there's a particular focus, a high regard, and particular focus on the salvific work of Christ on the cross. That's crucicentrism a particular focus on the salvific work, particularly the judicial kind of penal substitution work of Christ on the cross. And there you might think, that's a distinct, it, don't all churches speak of that? Now, if you go to other churches of other traditions, you begin to sense a different way it is discussed and spoken of. And they do this to agree, but in evangelicalism, there's particular focus. I mean, we even looked at Eastern Orthodoxy a few weeks ago, and Eastern Orthodoxy would get far greater emphasis to the early church fathers' focus, remember, on Christus Victor? That, that Christ is the conqueror of Satan, the overcomer of the enemy, and the conqueror of death. They bring that focus. But in evangelicalism, there's a special focus on what Jesus did, his substitutional death on our part on the cross. So I remember many years ago hearing Billy Graham say, I will never give a sermon where I do not mention the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ. To which we'd say, well, that makes total sense, right? How could any church differ from having sermons that speak of the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ? But then you go to a Roman Catholic gathering, and our Roman Catholic friends would, would say to us, perhaps, we will not have a mass, a worship gathering, where we do not come and gather around the Eucharistic meal and receive the body and blood of Christ. How could you have a gathering where you don't do that? So it's a bit different of focus in, in that kind of way. Crucicentrism. 
Third focus, distinctive of evangelicalism, is conversionism. Just say it with me. Conversionism. Now, conversionism is this. It's a belief that human beings, for one, need to be converted, a deep sense that we need conversion. And then it's the corresponding emphasis on a conversion experience. That is especially so in evangelicalism. They, the evangelicals experience conversion, they might, whether it be through a particular dramatic moment where it takes place or a long conversion process, a point where they make a personal decision and saying, I'm going to follow Jesus and want to become like him. Now, now, in that, can you hear some of the strains of pietism, puritanism, in that kind of idea? Now, now for an example... In fact, I remember not long after I came to Southview, on many occasions I had individuals tell me, you know, Clyde, at every worship gathering, we need to have an altar call where individuals come forward and are invited as they come forward to turn in faith to Jesus. Now, that's not a bad encouragement. Altar calls can be a wonderful thing. Partly, that idea, though, reflects a certain perspective that our focus is on that conversion moment. And really in evangelicalism, some have said that it is overly focused on just getting the ticket to heaven, just being converted with not enough emphasis on what all has to happen in the fullness of life. So there's a focus on a conversion experience. Like you won't typically have an altar call in an Anglican church or a Roman Catholic church. Their altar calls look like coming to the communion, right? Expressing faith in that way. All right, a fourth focus of evangelicalism, distinctive, is activism. Activism. And activism is a belief that the gospel, that the good news needs to be expressed in effort. And, and you might get a sense there of, of that coming out again, Puritanism, Pietism, Wesley's small groups, that, that the gospel, the fact that we have turned to Christ needs to be expressed in how we live out the faith together. So evangelicals, particularly are focused on engaging in mission. The talk about a missional church in that kind of way, that comes out of evangelicalism because there's a passion to say, we need to live this out together. In every activity of life, activism. And then a fifth distinctive I'll just touch on is transdenominationalism. Would you say it with me? Transdenominationalism. Now what that speaks to or refers to is simply this. Transdenominationalism is just kind of the, the pragmatic penchant for cooperation and support of shared projects, evangelistic efforts. Evangelicals especially focus on joining together, partnering together in how we live out the gospel, declare it evangelistically, and express it even compassionately. So, for example, typically, typically, the first groups on a scene in a crisis situation around the world will be evangelical churches or evangelical organizations, like Samaritan's Purse. That's just typical of evangelicals. And another picture of this, for example, two other pictures. Shortly after I came to Southview in October 1999, there was a city-wide evangelistic rally. If you were here, you might have remembered it, where we rented the Saddle Dome, and 200 churches joined together in bringing Franklin Graham to town so that our city could hear the good news of Jesus. Were any of you there? Okay, four of us were. That's good. I don't know what else are you doing on that weekend. That is typical. 
And another example of this, in two, week, two weeks, Jane Byrne and I are going to be joining with a large group of pastors in our city to plan for an event in the spring where we're going to have a serve day, where the Church of Calgary is going to seek to serve our city and the people of our city in very tangible ways. That comes out of evangelicalism, and we'll be letting you know more about that in, in the months ahead. But that, again, is typical of the evangelical impulse. Those five things together, biblicism, crucicentrism, conversionism, activism, and transdenominationalism. You got those? Now, you might hear those and, again, think, if all your life has been in the evangelical church, you think, well, that's just the way you do life in Christ. But... It gets particular focus in the evangelical movement, all right, which leads to the third question I want to touch on today, and it's simply this. So what do we take from all this? I mean, we just take kind of a quick overview. I mean, there's so much more we could get into this, and, and I think you might hear these, these five distinctives and recognize that, boy, those five distinctives, really, they're, they're present here at Southview in varying degrees. And, and you might feel like, well, we do. We hear, we see those affirmed uh, consistently by the way we do life together, through the preaching, what we speak of, what we focus on. So I think we hear those regularly. So today I really want to focus on something a bit different flowing out of that. Uh, and not those distinctives, but, but I, I want to talk about something that has hit me again and increasingly through this series that we've walked through for, for myself as we've journeyed through it and the study of church history, and, and I want to try to personalize it for us, if I may. And it's simply this. On the one hand, uh, we talk about, we hear of and read of the, the splits, the, the schisms, the divisions that have marked the church over the past 1,100 years. I mean, and really, it's, it's such an common part of the unfolding of the body of Christ over the centuries that I think we really don't think much about it at times. We just think that's the way church life is. We just kind of expect there will be splits, there will be schisms, uh, there will be divisions in that kind of way. So on one hand, we have that. And then on the other hand, we look at Scripture and we see Scripture essentially saying this that to allow or contribute to disunity in the body of Christ or, or in a fellowship is to be fundamentally at odds with the purpose of God in human history. Does that sound like I'm overstating things? I mean, from where would I get that in Scripture? Can I point to one place? The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. And in Ephesians chapter 4 we read this in, in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, now really, that translation doesn't get at some of the emphasis that Paul's words actually have. Another translation puts this way. Make every effort, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, Paul here in this text, he doesn't say, you know what? 
church, try to create unity like human communities try to do it. He's not speaking of some human project here. It's a project that began long, long ago, pre-existing all of us. And Paul to that end says, make every effort. Now, our English translation of that verse, again, it, it loses some of the urgency that is present in the original Greek. Because this is not a call, Paul's words here are not a call for building the church, for building God's kingdom. But rather, it is a warning to keep, to stay within, to maintain the unity God has already inaugurated within his body through Christ. And into which we are brought by the Spirit. Literally, Paul says, do not spare one bit of effort in keeping unity in the body of Christ. Do it now. Pay any price. Spare no pains. You must do this. I could not be more serious about this, Paul is saying. That's what he's saying to the body of Christ in these words and what he's saying to us. Don't you spare one bit of effort and in light of the beauty of, of godly community and the staggering cost that our triune God paid in order to provide us with a unified body in him, don't you dare try to damage it. So we see that in scripture, I think. And then we look at church history. And, and, and really... I think we look at times at typical life in the body of Christ, and you really need to conclude, boy, that's what we commonly do. I mean, we gossip, we backbite, we, we allow unresolved conflict to go on. We, we find our pet peeves, and we just let them simmer. And then we battle, we divide, we split. I mean, think about it, friends. What doctrine, what gift have we not trampled on to allow it to bring division in the body of Christ. Just think through it. Mode of baptism, former understanding of communion, doctrine of end times, proper translation of scripture, the role of women in ministry, the role of the Holy Spirit, a certain style of preaching, appropriate clothing for church attendance. Really, th think about this. Just try to think of one doctrine that has not been allowed to split churches and denominations. Can you think of one? You know, over these past weeks, we've been looking at a few of the more prominent traditions and denominations in the body of Christ. So how well do you think we're all doing as followers of Jesus in responding to God's call on this, on us, to, to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? How do you think we're doing on that one? In 2011, the Pew Forum on Religion, they, they did a study of the number of Christian denominations in the world. So do, do this. Can you just take a second? Can you turn to the person next to you and just make a guess? How many Christian denominations do you think there are in the world today? Take a guess. We've just covered like seven or eight of them in the, in the past weeks. Share it with the person next to you. Your guess. The actual number of Christian denominations in the world today, estimated by the Pew Forum, is over 41,000 denominations. 
I know. This teaching series is going to be a lot longer than you thought. <laughs> 41,000. I mean, clearly, you think about that. Those splits haven't all been over essential matters. They haven't been over matters like the deity of Christ, salvation by faith. There are certain matters over which we should stand. The apostle Paul approached Peter. It says he confronted him to his face saying, Peter, you are preaching a different gospel. There are matters like that. But over 41,000 denominations, and every one of them is right. Do you think we've been too used to division in the body of Christ? I, mean, I, I want us to think about this for a moment. That means that there are at least 41,000 times an individual or a group said, this is a line in the sand. This matter is absolutely critical. We'd be going against God if we went any other direction. To the point of starting not just a new church, but a new denomination. Over 41,000 times. Honest friends, there aren't that many things to disagree on in Scripture. There, there, there aren't. You know how many verses there are in the Bi whole Bible? 30,442. I counted. <laughs> That's how many there are. I, and so think about this for a moment. Let's put this in perspective. That means that even if that one original Christian church of Jesus, if it had over its history had a disagreement and split over every single verse in Scripture, there would still be 10,000 less schisms in the body of Christ than there are actually today. What does that tell us? I, I grew up, I shared with you, I grew up in the Plymouth Brethren Assemblies. Now, we said we weren't a denomination. We just happened to be separate, separated from all other denominations. And, and one of our things uh, as Plymouth Brethren was we didn't call our meeting places churches. Because the church, the church is a people, it's not a building, which actually is right according to Scripture. So we called our buildings gospel halls or, or chapels or something like that. And it really, it couldn't help but kind of look down your noses at, a bit at those other denominations that called their buildings churches, like those riffraff in the Alliance. <laughs> but even so, we would talk about the day when we'd all be in heaven together. No more denominations. And what an incredible day that would be. And we talked, what, what would it be like when we're in heaven? Because there would be some Roman Catholics there, represented by the Pope. And there would be some Lutherans there, represented by Martin Luther. There'd be Methodists there, represented by the Wesleys. And there'd be some Plymouth Brethren there, represented by Jesus. <laughs> you know At least that's what I was taught. It'd be a great day. Yeah, let's remember this. In the end, in the end, Jesus won't allow his people to be separated into brethren churches or Presbyterian or Lutheran or Catholic or Orthodox. It's not going to happen. Why? Again, we go back to Ephesians 3, verse 4. Because there is one body and one spirit. Think about this. God looks down on his church in Calgary today. He doesn't see denominations. You know what he sees? Outposts of his kingdom. They might have a different name on their doorposts, 
but there's one church in Calgary. And so we read in Ephesians 3, verse 4, there's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and the Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I mean, regardless of how many traditions and denominations that we split ourselves into, Jesus Christ still, he has one church. He has one church. And he takes it very seriously. Look at what the Apostle Paul writes as he speaks to another church, to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now understand this about that word you there in this text. That word you is in the plural, meaning that at least in this verse, Paul is not speaking to you individually and saying, you are God's temple. He is saying, church, you are God's temple. And God's spirit dwells in you collectively together. Understand this about what he is saying. It is the body of Christ together in that kind of way, collectively. And then listen to what Paul writes. Prompted by the Holy Spirit. Paul adds this in verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple. Now remember, what is God's temple? Here he's speaking of it's the body of Christ. It is a church. If someone contributes to to disunity or division or destruction in Christ's body on earth, read this verse with me. Verse 17, read it. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. That take you aback at all? And this is right out of scripture. I mean, does that cause a bit of sober reflection? I got to tell you, as I was reflecting on these passages again today, I, I, these words aren't just written to members in the church, they're written to pastors, maybe particularly to pastors as well. It should cause sober reflection. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. And why is unity so critical in the body of Christ? Look what he goes on to add in verse 17. Because God's temple is holy. It is sacred. And you are that temple. We are that temple. Unity is critical in us because, think of this, friends. It is critical. It is essential because this is what God is doing in the world. Us. This is what God is doing. This is not just some religious or just some social gathering that would choose to be and maybe will, maybe won't. This, the body of Christ, this, in all its varied expressions and traditions, this is God's strategy for declaring to the world, my kingdom has come in my son, and he is Lord, and you can now have new life through him, through faith. He is the way. This is his strategy for doing it. And the way we walk in unity declares the world the reality of that fact. The church, it's God's vehicle for doing this. Does it make sense why the apostles, writers of scripture would take this so seriously then? Think what the apostle Paul wrote in his uh, Titus chapter 3 verse 10. Listen to his words there. In, in Titus 3 verse 10, Paul wrote this. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. I mean, the, the, the gracious beauty of this is in, in this effort and say, oh Lord, we want unity. The gracious beauty in this is that we're not alone in seeking to preserve and strive towards unity as the body of Christ. We are not alone in this. 
And we know that because as Jesus, as Jesus prepared to be arrested, as he knew he was just about to go to the cross, he gathered with his disciples and offered a high priestly prayer to God the Father. And you think in that crucible moment, knowing what's ahead of him, even to the point of praying, oh God, would you spare me from this? In that crucible moment, what was at our Savior's heart? What did he pray at the heart of his prayer? And it's this, going back to John 17. Again, in John 17, in, in verse 22, Jesus prayed to the Father, the glory that you have given me, Father, I've given to them. For what purpose? So that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And what is the purpose of us being perfectly one? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Our Savior still prays for us. Maybe even on this morning, whatever that looks like in the heavenly realm, our, our Savior turned to the Father and said, Oh, Father, remember my prayer? I'm still praying it. Would you cause them to be perfectly one? Because, beloved, the way we are one together, the way we are one declares to the world the reality that he has come and that our Father loves the world. That's what's declared by our unity. So Paul would say, if someone's being divisive, warn them once, warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. I think the reality of looking at our church history across the ages tells us one thing. We have gotten far too used to division and splits within the body of Christ. Amen? Can I give you encouragement in this regard? Uh, beginning tomorrow, I'm, I'm going and gathering with the pastors, the church leaders of the city of Calgary, out to Antios, Antios Retreat Center. We meet there every year. We're across denominational lines and church traditions. We gather together for those days to pray for our city and for the body of Christ in Calgary. Mennonite, Pentecostal, Anglican, Alliance even, and Plymouth Brethren. Gathered there saying, Father, would you make us one? So maybe wherever you are in these coming few days, you can join with us in that prayer. And as you pray that prayer, I can tell you this. There's another who's echoing your prayer in the heavens. It's our Savior. It's our King. So would you pray with me? Will you bow your heads with me? And, and perhaps as, as we close, just for a moment in the silence, I hear a Mago Mosaic. Hey, Maybe in just this silence, could this be a time of confession, maybe repentance? Is there is some way you've been prompted? We've realized you, there, there's something that's been allowed to stir up in your heart that really is against what God would desire. I just, in the silence, let's bring that to God. And could, again, and just in the silence, can this be a time of intercession as well? Let's echo Jesus' prayer from John 17. Just ask God that he would continue to bless us with the unity he has blessed us. Oh, Father, we... Your son prayed that his followers would all be one. 
So in the power of the Spirit, we join our prayers with Him. Oh God, we would pray that You are our Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Prince of Peace. Would You give us grace seriously to lay to heart the great dangers we can move into by our unhappy divisions. Thank You for, thank You, Father, for all the unity with which You have blessed us. It is, it's a gift from You. We take it as that. Would you please, though, take away any hatred, prejudice, and whatever else may hinder us from continued godly union and concord, that as there is but one body and one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of us all, so we may, we, may we henceforth be all of one heart, of one soul. May we be united in one holy bond of peace, of, of faith and charity, and may we with one mind and one mouth glorify you through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we God's people say, Amen.